John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 771.ps2509, certificate number 37241, Joe Meek. I know that you love music. You're a music lover. I gotta say, one of my favorite things to listen to. Yeah. music is that right mm-hmm. top 10 i've known you to listen to music i've known you to be knowledgeable about music how knowledgeable are you would you say about the production of music oh almost none really like i'll um almost none That's almost a, almost a, almost not does none even modify how knowledgeable are yeah, you none, none more black none more knowledgeable <laughs> Yeah, I feel like uh, when people describe, like I know effects that I can hear in a song. For instance, uh, 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 preverb. Preverb. Okay. Yeah. Or um. Fram. Flum. Or like like an effect like a effect on a guitar, you know, like a a, like wah, what? a wah wah pedal on a <laughs> oh, guitar. Oh, okay, okay, a wah wah pedal, good. Or uh, I guess reverb. That would be more normal than preverb. Yeah, reverb, as we say. Preverb, as we famously say. It's not like um, <laughs> it's not like the NFL where they say, have to say defense <laughs> instead of defense. Yeah. They, oh, yeah. They switch to defense. We yeah. do say reverb. You do say reverb. Yeah, okay. not reverb. Okay. Did I say reverb? You said reverb. But I said preverb. Preverb, yeah, you said. As the old preverb goes. As preverb and reverb. Is preverb just reverb that's um that's perverted? Preverb. <laughs> um you, you know, reverb works a lot of different ways and you can if you're uh if you're monkeying with it actually have reverb that um that precedes the introduction of the sound. It's a it's a it's an so you, advanced effect. You hear effect. kind of the echo coming in. Yeah, it's sort of it's a, and sw- then the, a swell in. Yeah. Uh, somebody didn't somebody write us a letter about? Oh, I know what this is. Yeah, this is from a recent Addenda show. Somebody wrote in. They made a little omnibus sample thing that they had uh, that they'd put a little beat on, 
And they, they used gated snare because they know how much you love gated snare. Oh, I do. And I know that is some kind of effect you can put on the snare that does something weird to its waveform. I have no idea either how you do it or what it would sound like. Well, you know, the, the, um, the love or hate of gated snare is, um, is kind of a, a music producer, in particular an 80s uh, music producer sound that in the nineties was, was really unfashionable and made, uh, made a sort of shorthand for a, a, like an example of bad production that now that we're in the nineties and we're making cool rock again, we don't use this, this terrible gated snare. And I have worked with a lot of people that, uh, and because I was making records during this era of like the gated snare, because it was famously uh, a sound used by Phil Collins and perhaps um, invented by Phil Collins, but it was, um, it's just a snare drum that has a noise gate, you know, a gate that, that cuts off noise below a certain. This is not a physical point. gate. This is some kind of, this is some kind of engineering thing you do to the wave of the, of the drum sound. That's right. It's a, it's a, it's a compressor it's like a filter or something. A compre- well, it's a compressor that shuts down the sound after it goes below a certain oh, I see. So volume threshold. Does that mean it ends abruptly? Yeah. And the, and the, the, and, and what, what gated snare is, is it's really a gate on the reverb. And if you think about it, his Phil, Phil Collins' song in the air tonight, that dun 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 you know, that the signature sound of the 80s snare drum that I'm that I'm that you just mimicking with the that you just did amazingly. What what happens is it doesn't have the long tail that actually hitting a drum would, which would be I see. If it had that much explosive sound on it. And instead it has this really punchy, tight, and you hear it in Phil Collins recordings. And then it became a ubiquitous sound in the eighties. And then in the nineties, it was really out of fashion. And if you used a gated snare, if you you used gated reverb, you were real dud, but I was not actually opposed to it. I was never one of the like gated snare haters. Cause frankly, I was too dumb. You didn't think it got poisoned by... No, I was too dumb to hate anything. Um, But all of this stuff, because now, of course, it's come full circle. All of these sounds are just tools in a toolkit. I, you know, I've read enough rock criticism to like, to have heard about the toolkit, you know, to to get the vague idea that a a producer might do something unusual, like put the drummer in a, in a closet or, you know, a different part of the room or something, or, you know, totally take out the bass from some sound to, and I just don't hear it i mm-hmm. guess like i don't think i have a very good ear for that kind of thing uh or maybe not a good memory for it do you do you think most would a, would an average layperson listener just have to have that stuff pointed out to them or because i don't know if i could identify a typical drum sound of a certain artist or here's what's weird about the bass on this record and partly that is because you're like a fish that is that has never really um, thought about water, right? You're you're soaking in the world of music production, 
And yeah. for the most part, every song you've ever heard has been subjected to some form of production. So your like lack of whatever art, uh, articulateness or language or mm-hmm. even perception of what it takes to get a, a group of musicians in a room to making, you know, the process that goes about making that music into dark side of the moon or, um, you know, or old town road or whatever. Those are the two things Those, I would like to make. Yeah. The two, the two sounds that, <laughs> that, that exist that you think about when you think about music. <laughs> um, everything that, that goes into that process, uh, you've, you've lived with your whole life. And until you sit and spend, and, and I think in a lot of cases, spend hours trying to make recorded music, you don't realize how much goes into it, how um, alchemical it is. But it is an artistry, like all this stuff about the, the, the studio wizards and stuff, like in your experience, that is real. Like not just anybody can put four guys in a room and get the right sound. In the original days of music recording, um, the, you know, the first music recordings were recorded through a horn, through like a, like a, his, his master's voice style cornucopia horn. And then lead belly sitting over there. Right. And it, and it went directly to, to a, a, a cylinder, cylinder or a yeah. wire or a wax where the needle was actually cutting the, the recording surface based on vibrations that were coming through a, through a, a, a horn, you know, singing into the wrong end of a, of a trumpet. Um, and as music recording technology got more advanced and, and we started using magnetic tape, the original recordings were in mono, which is, you know, j- just, it's one sound. It's, it's the not, same in your left ear and your right ear. Right, not separated into stereo. And also was recorded onto just one track of the tape. I mean, the idea of putting two recording heads next to each other and splitting the tape in half effectively and recording one thing on one side and one thing on the other was an invention. Someone had to say, what if we put, what if we made these heads smaller? And, but every time you do that, if you have a a piece of tape, that's one inch across and you put two heads on it instead of one, each part of that tape now has half the information, uh, half the, half of the amount of surface area that was previously holding the, you know, the, the, um, pulling the sound for lack of a better term. Wait, does this mean that when we hear about, you know, in the early days of, of rock, for example, studios going to four or eight track recording, they're still just using one piece of tape. They're just using strips on the tape. That's right. I just assumed they had figured out ways to use and synchronize multiple strips of magnetic tape. There, 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 there was that during a period when, uh, when four track recorders, when, when you were trying to make eight track recordings, but you only had four track recorders. Oh, that's what you would do. You'd put two four track recorders next to each other or use them. But a four track recorder is using a single strand of tape. Yeah. And, huh. and the tape, you know, tape can, tape machines use different widths of tape, eighth inch, eighth inch, quarter inch, half inch, one inch, two inch. And two inch tape really be, was the, was sort of the max that tape recording ever went to in terms of width and two inch tape. I've never are, seen two inch tape. Think how wide that is. It's like, well, it's like duct tape. Two inch tapes are the tapes that you see in uh, pictures of old mainframe computers yeah, the big reels. where the big reels are going. That's two inch tape. It's the same tape that's used to record rock bands. 
Um, and two-inch tape became the industry standard at a certain point in the 1970s. But, you know, the Beatles, all their records until the very end were made on four-track tape machines, and that's one piece of tape that has four recording heads on it, each one recording one quarter of the surface area of that tape. And they're capable, because they're separated, of because and there are four playback heads, that each track is a, is effectively a separate piece of tape. It's just one, it's all together on one reel. And if you have more than four uh, threads of music or whatever, you have to mix stuff down onto one track. Is that right? Yeah. So that is part of the what that uh, what you're describing is what happened over the course of uh, this period of innovation in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, where more where recording technology was being used pioneered and used in new ways to make more complicated recordings than you could when you, when you're, you were limited at first to one microphone in a room, a live recording, essentially. And then with the advent of a mixing board, which is, which is a a set of inputs that you can put multiple microphones into adjust to their volume each individually, and then run that mixed set of microphones into a recording machine mm-hmm. first one track then two tracks um that uh that you could make more and more sophisticated recordings but original rock music or or, or any kind of recorded music uh the 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 first idea was put everybody in a room put a microphone up and play the song as many times through as as it takes to get everybody to do it without messing up and it must have sounded pretty good because we still listen to that. Like if, if you're listening to Elvis, Scotty, and Bill, it's one of those, right? Right. And I, and early recordings, it's a whole symphony orchestra with one big microphone in the room. Sure. And those microphones are are very well made. They're big. They have a very large diaphragm that's capable of picking up a lot of different nuance. But the art of recording at the time had a lot to do with like you put the louder instruments further away from the microphone and the quieter instruments forward. Which is what you would do in a stage setup anyway, right? Well, I mean... Often, an orchestra has... Right, an orchestra would. Like uh, electric music, you have a lot more... um, You have a lot more ability to turn up, turn down. And especially now when most live music is sent through big, uh, big amplifier setups, you know, like public address systems, the onstage sound can be really quiet relative to what you're hearing in a, in a, in the rock show itself. Um, you know, Neil Young famously plays through a very small little Fender champ. It's just, there's a microphone in front of it and it's sent out through tens of thousands of Watts of amplifier. Wait, I should know this and I don't, that's what happens. You just put a, the PA, the, the venue sound is just a mic sitting in space in front of the amp? Yes. Over It's not directly connected? Like no, it's no. it's not electrical? No. Why is that better? Uh the so the amp has a distinctive sound that comes out of the speaker and the speaker changes the sound, right? I mean the the amplifier so itself the, the artist wants the speaker to sound. Yeah. Like the, that. And in a lot of cases in rock music, you know, the speaker imparts its own form of distortion and compression to 
the the sound that the instrument's making. So if you sing into a microphone as a vocalist, that goes straight into the public address system. It doesn't go out through a speaker and get recorded through another microphone. That would be crazy. Although, it, but 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 all apparently all guitar sound is. That's a way of that's a way you could create a vocal effect. But all most guitar sound is now bass guitar is often plugged directly into the PA hmm. because bass uh, a bass waveform takes longer to develop. Bass is harder to capture with a close mic on a speaker because the 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 bass wave is much longer. And if you put a microphone against a bass speaker, you need a much bigger microphone, and you need you know you need it to be. It's it's oftentimes much easier just to run the bass straight through the PA. The PA covers the big sound wave, but a guitar sound almost every guitar you ever hear in a live music context is coming through an amplifier, through a speaker, and then rec- and then a microphone in front of the speaker. That seems a little bit nuts. Is there any sense in which that's just all cultural and there could be technological ways to give you the guitar sound you want without that step and Ye- nobody does it? Yes. Um, it's called modeling. Uh, so software is now at the level that it can imitate the sound of almost any great instrument. But as soon as it's that, you're going to have people being like, it doesn't sound the same. Well, and, and I've been to a lot of concerts for a while. Weezer, uh, traveled without amps. They just plugged into little, little digital preamps that, that made their guitars sound really cool. And then out through the PA, but everyone agreed it sounded terrible. ZZ Top I saw do it one time. Part of the problem is when you go to a show, you're used to hearing sound come from the stage. Mm. And you hear the sound in the PA if you're standing in the back of the room. But even then, you're hearing a loud stage sound and then the PA is somewhat augmenting it. And if you're actually dancing down front, it's it's disconcerting if Weezer's guitars are are making no noise. When when I saw them at the showbox, there was was like this this hollow vacuum (laughs) in the coming from the stage and then all of this music coming out of the PA was very weird, but that was early days of attempting to do that. The thing is that, that the, the desire to make, um, the desire to make music something other than just a reproduction of what a band is capable of doing in a room is a thought technology. It's a, it's an idea that it would not have occurred. It's, it doesn't follow naturally. Right. From the idea of music. What if we could make this sound different than the musician actually does sound? Right. Here we have five people. They've all learned the song. They know their parts. What is the, What more is there to do than to put them down on tape? And if you were doing it from scratch, your degree, your um, measure of success there would be like how faithfully you reproduced the, the actual performance. And your desire as a producer would be to get those musicians very comfortable, to have the... Because the same group of five players can play the same exact song 20 times. And each one of those takes has a different feel. Mm -hmm. And what you want as a producer to a large degree is to get the feel, get the best feel you can. What what percentage of the job is psychology versus technology? Each individual musician also has, um, has their own trip and, and a great producer can, can pinpoint a person that's having a bad day or can, can figure out a way to get you to find a performance in yourself. If you think about sympathy for the devil by the Rolling Stones, they recorded that song 100 million, billion, trillion times, literally. 
over the course of weeks and weeks and weeks. They would get in the studio and they would play it and they would try and add this. They would try and add that. It never came together. It didn't ever click with anybody. And over the course of all that time, one day they just played the version of it that we all know and love. Presumably you love. Uh, I do. And they all the knew song. it at once. Yep. The, uh, well, the basic tracks, right? The vibe, the bass and the drums and the rhythm guitar, the thing that establishes the tune. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of debate. There are a lot of songs you hear on the radio today where it is completely unnecessary that any of the players on it ever meet. Yeah. Um, they're, they are recorded separately. They're all playing to a metronome, uh, in headphones, potentially in their own basements or home studios. And then the producer, you know, mixes the song together using all kinds of digital manipulation. But, but in songs like, like a Rolling Stones song from the sixties or seventies, it was still, and and in any Long Winter song you would have heard, or any any indie rock song, or you know rock vibe song. Um, absolutely, your your hope and desire is to get as much of that down with the musicians playing together in a room to to make it happen live, so that you get that the ineffable the the. It's funny that the ineffable is audible. You know, the ineffable uh, is so key. Uh, cause you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily think that it would be, you'd think that how the musician feels is important to the musician, but you could never see it in the waveform or hear it on the record, but you can absolutely hear it. Absolutely. Absolutely can. And what makes sympathy for the devil such a great track is that there's just an, there's an impossible amount of vibe in there that, I mean, everybody that ever worked with the Rolling Stones said that nine out of 10 takes that they had in the studio were terrible, unlistenably <laughs> bad. It's just that they sometimes clicked into, into a, a magical state and were, and were lucky enough that they lived in a time when they had the recording uh, resources to take that many shots at it. I mean, as a rationalist, I would believe that everything is quantifiable, that somebody can point to, you know, what's the exact moment where there's... Um, you know, a millisecond of delay between the bass and the drum, you know, that could point to the exact factors that make that take better. Or, you know, the volume is 10% higher here than it was on the other. You know, there should, there are ways to do that. You know, it would take all the magic out of it, but that's what we're measuring, right? Little tiny things happened that didn't happen on the other takes. Well, there's an entire industry within the music production world devoted to to discovering and mass producing exactly what you're talking about. People that have examined the waveforms of the best microphones, the best amplifiers, but also the best sounding rooms. Yeah. So that, you know, they go into into the great halls and they take they make field recordings just what it sounds like in the room with no with no sound happening. And they can then interrogate those sounds and create digital, you know, algorithms that would allow you to take a song you recorded at home, send it into Royal Albert Hall as a, as a facsimile and, and then, you know, bring that sound to your, to your Macintosh. I guess that ruins the magic of it if that actually works. Well, hard to say because a lot of the music that you listen to now is a product of a lot of that kind of, 
of manipulation. But a lot of music today does kind of have a soulless feel. Well, so, and that's the that's the other argument, and the argument that the day that we stopped recording onto tape and went entirely into recording onto computers was a day that 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 a lot of magic was lost. And a lot of this has to do with the way your ear naturally receives loud information. You know, the ear and the brain impart a natural compression to loud sounds or to sound because your ear is capable of hearing and, and perceiving nuance in both a boat horn and uh, like a feather you know, whispering against a, 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 a butterfly, um, which happens, you know, as, as you know, every day. I love listening to Feathers that. whispering against butterflies. Do that very, again, ASMR. Very common uh, experience. But your ear has this incredible range, and part of how the ear does that is that it's able, in conjunction with your brain, to reduce the relative volume of super loud sounds and amplify the relative volume of super quiet sounds to make them in your, in your world, you still can tell a loud sound from a soft one, but you're not forced to, uh, you know, to your, your brain is able then to put those into knowable, uh, sort of sound limitations where you can, you can, you, you he, seem to hear both on a, on a related scale or a yes. similar enough scale. If, if, if the proportion was actually what it is, on paper, you know, one was 10,000 times the amplitude of the other or whatever, you, you wouldn't even be able to relate the two. Yeah. Your mind wouldn't, you know, that's one of the, what's one of the amazing things about your mind and your ear and in recording music, um, there's a, there is a, a need for a technology that effectively does the same thing because the music that is recorded is going to come out through your your headphones or your, your hi-fi speakers. And those technologies are not capable of reproducing the great, uh, breadth of amplitude in actual sound and life. Um, but they need to approximate it. You know, you, you don't want to hear or, or the suspicion would be that you wouldn't want to hear sounds that sounded chemical. You'd want the the recorded sound to approximate what it would be like to hear it in, in life. You're making it sound like that's not an absolute limit though. That like there's a possibility for better amplification or playback tech that somehow could duplicate the range of, of actual sound. That is also a, um, we just don't have it. Well, it's a, it's an arms race too. I mean, increasingly sound amplification technology. I mean, it, it continues to advance by leaps and bounds. And we're able now to hear recorded music with such a much better fidelity in some ways, right? But but, but still, nothing like nothing like the the breadth of of life of the ear. Hard hard to hard to imagine. But we can fool the ear by using limiting and compressing technologies that basically bring the bring the volume of quiet sounds up and bring the volume of loud sounds down. And it must be good because when you listen to recorded music, you don't think this is nothing like music. You, you actually think this is exactly like music. And there are lots of different ways that compression happens, right? Just the, just the technology of putting music onto tape has in 
inherent limitations that act as a form of compression. Mm -hmm. If you hit tape with sound that is too loud, the tape itself will, it puts a shelf on how reliably it can reproduce the, all of the amp, the amplitude change and tape compression is a thing that we talk about a lot in recorded music, that the sound of the tape actually grabbing and, and compressing that music is its own form of, um, what is that sound? Little, little iron particles shifting around on the surface of the tape. Yeah. Little iron particles, putting a limitation on how much of that sound they can absorb. And that itself is a, is a warm and inviting kind of, um, because, because it's not an abrupt change. It's a, it's a smooth roll off of loud noise. And what you hear, what, what abrupt sound is, and you hear this a lot in digital is where compressors or limiters cut off sound past a certain point. And what it, that ends up sounding like is distortion. It ends up sounding like an un, unlikable distortion, a, a, a brittle sound where the, where past a certain loudness, uh, thou shalt not pass. Whereas with tape, that is a, that's a, that's a kind of a lovely rolling off of volume. And we often, and I think this is true even now, but, but in my own recording life, we would record things like bass and drums, things that had very high transient sounds, very, you know, like sharp attack. We would record those onto tape, even though all we were going to do was then immediately import those recordings into digital because the tape itself compressed the sound in a pleasing way, kind of better than any outboard machine could do. Reading about studio experimentation like this, like I'm constantly struck by how it's almost entirely trial and error. Yeah. Right? Like nobody's, I mean, there, there are general principles, but those had to be discovered. And, you know, for each new song, it's almost like a new experiment. Right. Um, the Nobody sat down with a piece of paper and figured out, okay, I've got it. Here's where we put the mic. Like, it really is like, here's a great new way to record acoustic guitar, and I just, I had to try 500 things that sounded like crap before I found a good one. Well, and once you discover those things, they're not set in concrete. Like, the way that an engineer records acoustic guitar is very individual to every engineer, and almost always completely individual to an individual recording. So, once somebody put a microphone in front of an acoustic guitar and got a great sound... They didn't, in most cases, nail that microphone to the carpet and nail that chair to the floor and say, that's where you sit. And because the next guitar player plays the guitar in a different way. And that microphone setup wouldn't work the same way for them. But can you hear a producer or an engineer's style? Oh, they sure hope so. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you would like to think so, right? Because... They want to feel like they're part of the art. But I, I don't know if, again, not having a good enough ear. I mean, I guess I, I can hear Phil Spector's sure. bag of tricks, but I don't know if I could tell if it was him or an imitator. Well, and what Phil Spector did was, I mean, we're about to start talking about Joe Meek, who was a man that really pioneered a lot of this idea. And Phil Spector is another very famous producer from this dawn of using the studio as an instrument in and of itself. But what Spectre did, he realized that, um, that just a band of five people in the studio plucking away, um, didn't 
actually manage to communicate the intensity that one feels in seeing a live show. And Phil Spector's innovation was, well, what if I fill that room with people and I have three bass players all playing the same part, four guitar players playing the same part? I don't think I knew that's what the wall of sound was. It's it's not it's not multi-tracked over itself. It's it's, it's multiple instrumentalists. It's 30 people in a room playing the song playing the music of five people. And the idea is it somehow suggests one guy playing live. So you've got a grand piano, you've got a parlor piano, you've got a Rhodes piano and they're all playing the same part. And what it what it what it was was overdubbing or multi-tracking, mm-hmm. but it was just happening in the room and he would rehearse these bands and he would put his microphones in the room until he got that sound that ama- uh, that amazing huge sound but it's really just musicians in a room a lot of pressure on the musicians to play in perfect synchrony yeah, right you don't want to screw up right but but you know that we're talking about a time when there were an awful lot of good musicians in the world not like today well like a lot of crafts right there used to be a lot of people that were very good at working with plaster uh, a lot of stonemasons or you know or carvers um who who found a career and a, and uh you know a craft and an art in doing one thing really well and that has been you know that's true of um, of musicians too and i think that now there are fewer great musicians there are a, a, a lot more uh basement musicians now people like me who i don't think anybody would say i was a uh like a particularly gifted instrumentalist in any way but i can play 20 different instruments and and because recording technology it's it's the technology that's kind of leveled the playing field no what 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 the technology has done is made it so that you can play the studio just as well as you can play the guitar or better and playing the studio doesn't just mean that you um, that you go in and and correct mistakes that were played on a, a, a poorly on a guitar. It means that you're making a record that is more than just a a, a recording of a performance. It becomes, as the word suggests, a production. You're trying to get sounds rather than just songs, um, and that has been the that's been the evolution of recorded music from the late fifties on. And a lot of that, a lot of the, both the technology and the idea uh, or the ideas involved were sort of generated from the imagination of Joe Meek. What what were his innovations? Well, Joe Meek was a guy born in, in, uh, in the UK in the late twenties who had an interest in electronics. He's from uh, Gloucestershire and worked kind of, he was, he was a science fiction fan and went to work. He, he joined the air force and worked on radar. He's a, he's a nerd. He is a nerd and a, you know, and a soldering iron nerd and a, and a like looking at VU meters nerd loved it and, and pursued it uh, like just from an independent fascination. 
there's some sort of speculation that he had the first television in Gloucestershire because he built it. Uh, and you know, like who knows what he was watching on it. Yeah. Did but. he pay his license fee? <laughs> he, um, he, he loved music and he loved monkeying with machines. What would music have been for him? Is he, is he like jazz? Yeah. Jazz and, and the kind of, you know, the dance hall music of the, of the forties and fifties. He was not a musician himself. He could not play an instrument or, um, or write music, but he had a natural gift for it and a gift for sound so that when he started building things and tinkering with devices, he, you know, he had, um, he had a really good sense of what was, I mean, to, to put it in ASMR terms, like what was a, the, the, the pleasing amount of, um, of manipulation. It's interesting that he can do sound. it with no musical background. You know, that there are good producers who are also great musicians and instrumentalists. And you'd expect that. Yes. You know, he, this, this is the guy who, who knows how this sound gets produced and what's important about the, but it turns out you don't need that to, to hear it. Well, Joe Meek also was a songwriter and Ooh. composed lots of songs, including hit songs. And he did it by surrounding himself with musicians and actually humming in their ear. Like it goes like this. Oh, he can never read music. No. And they would put it down. You know, they'd like, they go, you mean like this? And he'd say, yeah, but with the, and he had, he had guys that wanted to work with him and, and, um, he wrote hit songs this way. That's an even greater kind of genius, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you can't fall back on it's actually it's actually in B, uh, it's a blues progression. Like if you're actually just kind of hearing it, yeah, you're like a savant. There are lots of people in my experience, maybe not lots, but there are plenty of people in the music business that come at it that way, um, who never, who either didn't learn a, mu- a musical instrument or were afraid to learn a musical instrument just because it seems like such an insurmountable task to to go from wanting to play guitar to actually playing guitar. Especially when like him, you're surrounded by people who are very good at it. And he got into it by working as a, as a, a tech person, right? He, he got into it from the electronic side and started working with other people, making music, working in studios, gradually got frustrated and, uh, went out on his own. And he, he opened his, he, 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 um, so he was born in 29. By the time he was 30, he had opened his own record label, Triumph Records, and had started kind of putting out, uh, attempting to do, to make recordings and, and release them. But what made Joe Meek different was that he regarded these technologies as a means to an end. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid to manipulate sound if it made a more pleasing sound. And this is an era when you think about the, the, um, the guys that uh, recorded that were, that were the, the recording engineers of the day, they thought of themselves as scientists, you know, they wore ties and, and, uh, lab coats and they're, and, and you saw this in the early days of the Beatles when, uh, when the Beatles would, try to get things to distort in order to have a cool sound. 
the um you know the EMI yeah. recorded guys would we say don't like, do that. No, this is this sounds terrible. This is garbage. We the idea being like we have all this machinery. We've built all these machines to get we've got a checklist fidelity. Yeah, right. And Joe Meek was not um was didn't think that way even in the early days. And if you think about 1960, it's a it's a transition era. There is rock and roll, um, and it's the kind of you know it's a sort of hillbilly skiffle music rockabilly and by 1960 it had sort of uh it has kind of fallen out of favor there was there was a lot of cool jazz happening there was um there was some there was soul music happening but it was not it was not uh the rock music that that we came to know and joe meek was he was a difficult character um abrasive opinionated he ended up he ended up building a studio in his apartment in um he had a like a a, a sort of three-story house called and it was on holloway road in in islington um and it's and it's North kind of a legendary place 304 uh holloway road and he built a studio in his house and was building his own all of his own gear this was stuff that you know emi could afford to build because they had a uh like a whole laboratory. But he was just sending away for parts. And he was just sitting in his house, welding stuff together, you know, soldering stuff together and building all kinds of things and pioneering all manner of technique that ended up being the techniques of, um, of the world of recording. He was one of the first people to think about reverb as a, as a uh, an effect, right? Reverb is is just the sound of of, um, of music echoing off the walls. It keeps, it, it keeps going after the initial attack is over. Yeah, it's just the sound of you being farther away from the instrument than you know your ear isn't against it, and so you hear not only the sound of the instrument but the sound of the environment mm-hmm. as the sound kind of and and this is a. This is a subtle effect. Anybody listening to this recording is going to hear the difference in the sound between my voice this far away from the microphone and this far away from the microphone. And the closeness of my voice when my lips are right against it. Should we let them vote? It it creates, you know, a very intimate sound, uh, and it has a lot more bass to it. As I pull the microphone away, and this is not a microphone designed to be used at a distance, but you can hear a lot more room. You hear the squeak of my chair more, more profoundly. People love the squeak of your chair. People have started to count it on Twitter. Yeah, well, it's a very good squeak. Any chair I sit in begins to squeak. It's just like any, you can put me in a $10,000 suit and it will wrinkle instantly. Well, I remember you bought these chairs because the old ones were squeaking. Yeah. And now mine is not squeaking, but yours is. No. I mean, I outweigh you by 100 pounds. But is that really what you're doing? Uh, you're just putting wear and tear on the chair? I think so. I think I just <laughs> am harder on furniture. I thought it was just something emotionally you were doing. No, I break chairs. <laughs> uh, but but to use reverb as an effect, like to put reverb on vocals and instruments separately, to add it in later, to uh, to really saturate reverb so that it sounds... Like uh, like it would like you were recording in a sewer or or even to make reverb sounds that don't sound like something in real life. Is he doing this in acoustic ways, the placement and directionality of mics, or is he figuring out a way to like kind of loop the sound back and and uh, I guess simulate reverb? So different different 
different sounds for different pounds. Hmm. Different as as we say in Islington. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of a North London saying. You can uh, if. if at EMI, for instance, um, what they did was they had a, ba- a cement room, a basement room there at, at uh, Abbey Road, that they would play music through a speaker in, down in the basement and put a microphone at the far end of the hall and re-record the Beatles playing so, through this speaker. Is it happening after? This is something you would record later with the, once you've got the... You can do it either way. You re- can record it in real time or, uh, and, and put it on the track, or you can use it as an effect. It's so crazy the kind of Rube Goldberg stuff you have to do to get to just get like a sound that to us now sounds pleasing and intuitive. But there are other ways. You can. Uh, there's what's called spring reverb, which is that you have two plates that have kind of long springs that are, look like the kind of springs you would see in a couch... And uh, the plates are connect are electrically connected, and the music goes into one plate, verberates through the springs, and is recorded by the other plate, and that creates a very pleasing sound. And you'd think it wouldn't. It's metal boinging. Anytime you hear a, an electric guitar that has a like a surfy kind of reverby sound, yeah. it's that sound has gone through a set of springs. And any guitar amp that has reverb on it, it's a spring reverb. And if you hit if you hit a guitar amp, I could turn this one on right now and hit it. It will actually go because the springs are vibrating. It's funny how basic it must be in the brain that we all kind of agree. This is an agreeable sound, but that one is not. Um, based on slight differences in, in the materials that are doing this. Uh, for some reason, we all kind of evolved with this shared sense of this is a good guitar sound. That That one's not. Right. Well, and and it depends it, on what it, you like, right? If you're into thrash metal, you're going to like a guitar sound that's a way different thing. Hang on, let me see if I can get this amp to do it. Oh, we're gonna we're doing live. Uh... How'd you do that? I hit it with my hand. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's more or less how spring reverb works. Yeah. Now that's an AC15 that I hit I hit with my fist, and the springs inside. Went wah, 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 wah. There's also plate reverb, which is a, as it sounds, a giant metal plate that is similarly, uh, like sound is electrically sent into one side of it and recorded on the other, and the sound of it going through this this plate is a uh, is a different kind of reverb and an expensive one. I like that it's so inscrutable. You know, like you can't justify what you're doing. Even after you hear it, all you can say is, to me, that one sounds better than this one. And, and the, the guys agree, you know, that's right. It's almost like, I mean, there's really no other art form like that. Can you imagine a poet just kind of, I mean, putting down random words and then being like, no, 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 no. Oh, hey, <laughs> there's a good one. A good combo. I, I guess I think it's Stendhal who said that music is the purest art because it's not trying to be anything else. A painting is trying to look like a landscape. A story is trying to recount a narrative, but a symphony is just itself, you know, like a guitar sound is just itself. And so that's the only standard is, is, uh, how pleasant was that sound as a sound? Right. right? But, but recorded music then became a, a thing that was no longer trying to sound like a bunch of musicians in a room. It's even more its own thing then. It's it, it's right. it's even more Stendhalian, you know? It, we're not trying to capture anything so much as we are is just to make you smile. Just to 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 
Well, what music does is somehow, inexplicably, ineffably, create an emotional reaction that someone hitting one note on a guitar can make you feel lonely or elated. And it's a very complex emotional reaction. You might not be able to put a single word to it. Like, you'll just be like, that's the feeling I get when I hear that song. That's right. And, And so what some of the things that Joe Meek pioneered are uh, the idea of close miking. This whole thing we were talking about, where you put a microphone up against an amp to get the sound of the speaker. Um, prior to that, you put an amp in a room and you put a, put a microphone all the way across the room uh, to get the sound That's, of the amp in the room. That would be someone playing a music, music in a room, yeah. And Joe Meek, and partly he discovered these things because he was re- making these recordings in his house um, and people were... People in the shop down below were actually banging a uh, oh, is that right? banging a broom on the on the ceiling when he was too loud. <laughs> His neighbors and he him. would reply to that by turning the speakers, put, putting the speakers face down on the floor and turning the music up. I guess one thing about it being in your house is you have you have time and space to tinker. Right. It's not it's not a nine to five. But so he was the, he was one of the first people to record bass just plugged directly into the board without going through a speaker. Di we call it. Um, he he invented. Uh, quite a few different like compressors. He invented the idea of separating uh, separating instruments from one another and not just having them all in the same room playing at the same time, but you know, separate tracking, separation of of sounds. Um, he was one of the first people to say, we're not just going to make this recording where you start at the beginning and record the song all the way to the end, but we're going to record the chorus and then we're going to stop and we're going to record another part separately or we're going to take two different recordings and splice them together. Is this partly psychological for the artists? Like if we start in the chorus, you you get a different A lot of it is him just searching for the best sound. Mm. And a lot and a lot of these techniques were um were just his imagination and the and whatever was expedient. He ended up having a number one hit. Joe Meek wrote a song. Like not produced by him? Like he's the artist of record? Produced by him and he wrote the song, but because he's not a musician, he put a band of guys together called The Tornadoes. Oh, I know this song. And the song's called Telstar. That's a big hit on both sides of the Atlantic. And Telstar was a uh, was a song about a Telstar communication satellite. If you satellite. didn't know he was a nerd, <laughs> this guy wrote a number one song about a satellite. And how he wanted to kiss it. No, it's, a, it's an instrumental, right? Yeah, an instrumental song. And in fact, it was the first number one song by a British group in America. That's the trivia question. Yeah, because it's, it's uh, what? It's almost a year before the Beatles, right? Uh, right. Well, a couple of years before the Beatles had a number one hit in America. This was in 1962, right? So I guess the, fir- the first Beatles hit in the U.S. would have been 64, right? Love I, Me Do? I think 63. 63 in the U.K., but was it 60? Was it a, a, a hit in the U.S. in 63? Yes, that's right. Love Me Do came out at the very end of 63, but it did not chart until January. I know things. Is that the sound of you knowing something? That's, yeah. Do you all, so I have a question. Do you always do that music and then do you do the finger guns? I use finger guns to, as you know, to accentuate a lot of different. This is why you've never been on Jeopardy, because they'd only get like four clues in. Every time you get one right. All right, John, select again. Hold on a second. Pow! But Joe Meek was also a tragic figure. He's not. 
he's a tragic and problematic figure. He was a very difficult guy to work with, and a lot of his um, a lot of what could have been great successes for him ended up he was he was great at at uh, you know seizing defeat from the jaws of victory. He very famously uh, was consulted by Brian Epstein about whether or not Brian should sign the Beatles, and Joe Meek was like, they're garbage, don't sign those guys. He passed on David Bowie's early recordings, thought he had no talent. Um, he heard Rod Stewart singing with uh, one of his first groups and agreed to sign the group, but only if they kicked Rod Stewart out of the band. What, what does this mean? He has bad taste? He has... Um, He's very opinionated, and despite all of his innovations, he wasn't really very rock and roll. You know, he came from a kind of a different school, and he was he was he wanted to make space age music. He actually made a record that didn't come out in his own lifetime, and it was um, he put a band together called Rod Freeman and the Blue Men. Is that a is there actually a Rod uh, Freeman? I don't think so. <laughs> But he made this outer this record. I hear a new world about um, about like outer space. So is he using kind of his studio wizardry to create what we think of as these kind of fifties sci fi mm, sounds? The, yeah, I mean not theremins, but he's making. But he's they have making, those kind of otherworldly radio effects. Yeah, interesting sound collages. Sadly, he's also bipolar mm. and schizophrenic, oh. and consumed with uh, paranoia, increasing paranoia, and and strangely like. Um, like he got a call, like a, like a cold call from Phil Spector one time, Phil just trying to like make friends with them. Phil Spector, a famously like stable man <laughs> and Joe Meek like hung up on him and was like, Phil Spector's trying to steal my brain waves through the phone. Oh, um, also, I guess you, you know, you live in this private world where you're the only person who can do your genius stuff that you do. And that probably, if you've got a tendency for that kind of stuff, it probably isolates you further because you're not wrong. Like other people don't understand your, uh, your concerns and your, you know, the things you care about. Right. And he's also on drugs, uh, <laughs> right. during this era. I would assume so. This is like the barbiturate mixed with speed era. And he's taking both. Can't you just take neither and get the same effect? Uh, that's what I would do. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> they they would, don't cancel each other out oh, like that. Okay. Uh, but and he was gay and a gay man during an era when um the music industry was a place that you could you could be gay not not like uh, out in the larger world but it wasn't uh it 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 wasn't an impediment to being successful in music Brian Epstein was gay Robert Stigwood who mm-hmm. went on to produce the Bee Gees and um, Saturday Night Fever. You were discreet, and your mates might have a laugh, but you wouldn't get drummed out of the industry, right? And there was a lot of, you know, I mean, music is also always a place that's uh, a, a like a, a respite or a safe harbor for for people of uh, across every aspect of queer spectrum. Um, he and Robert Stigwood actually collaborated on uh, some early productions, and. Um, and it was, you know, he he was he was kind of mobbed up with the music world of England in the early '60s in a way that would suggest that he, like, he made one of the first recordings of Tom Jones, <laughs> really, um, and and uh, and it was 
he tried to get Tom Jones a record deal and kind of at that point, like nobody wanted to, wanted to deal with Joe Meek. And it wasn't for a year or two, it wasn't for a couple of years that Tom Jones finally recorded That's So Unusual, at which point all these recordings like, uh, I mean, I get that that's a little prescient, but if the same guy is really boosting Tom Jones, but he's skeptical about David Bowie. Mm. He worked with Bowie, Gene Vincent, Denny Lane, Jimmy Page, Richie Blackmore, uh, all these guys before the, he, some of their earliest recordings were with Joe Meek. And Joe just kind of didn't know what he, he didn't have the business side of it figured out. Um, and he became, as his mental health declined, he became more and more uh, consumed with uh, with conspiracy theories. Sadly, the the story with Telstar was that he was sued by a French composer named Jean Ledru, who in 1960 had a, a made a recording called "Le Marche to Austerlitz." <laughs> it's uh from napoleon theme it's from his play austerlitz or his his short film austerlitz this is what french popular music was at the time and he sued uh saying that telstar was a, a ripoff huh and so in the so throughout joe meek's life he never received any of the royalties from telstar uh, which sold millions of copies because this lawsuit was underway and it wasn't until scant few months after his death that the Joe Meek's death that the lawsuit was resolved and it was determined that Austerlitz La Marche de Austerlitz was not available in the UK there was no way he could have heard it. So it was just some coincidental relationship of melody or something. that's right and it was not it it, it actually there was no basis to the to the suit. The French Um, Contributing to Joe Meek's paranoia was the fact that in 1963 he was nabbed in a in a sting uh in a public toilet in the uk soliciting homosexuality was still uh, illegal was still illegal he was fined 15 pounds for having uh you know basically had a wide stance in a in a public toilet but this now put joe meek on a list in the uk where you know, the uh, persecuting homosexuals was in the UK then, as in the United States, kind of a thing that that the police could do selectively, just as they produce, uh, just as they um, uh, persecuted people that were smoking marijuana. Um, they could do it if it served their purposes. You know, what, you know, they didn't, they weren't interested in filling up the jails, but it was a thing they could just hold over your something head. To do. So he didn't, it didn't hurt him professionally, but he was just harassed. It didn't hurt him professionally uh, because within the music world, it wasn't that big of a deal, but it subjected him to blackmail because oh. he didn't want his mother to find out. He didn't want it to be out in the world. He didn't want to be in the newspaper. And, and, he, and if you're prone to conspiracy theory thinking anyway, like this is, it's only going to intensify that when they really are out to get you. That's right. And he believed that the Cray twins, the famous uh, the UK gangsters, criminals, were were and 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 it's possible that they were actually blackmailing him because of this prosecution. Um, and it uh, it put him on edge, and in some some ways uh, accelerated his decline. He continued to have. He continued to be like a, in demand as a producer, despite um, having burned a lot of bridges. He 
but he, he gradually lost touch with the zeitgeist. He was convinced that his landlady was stealing his ideas through the chimney between oh, their apartments. Like she was listening. She was listening. Um, he, he thought he, when he went out in the street, he always wore big sunglasses and a disguise because he thought that he was being followed by the Cray brothers, by the Cray brothers, <laughs> among others. And then sadly, the tipping point for him seems to be, uh, the murder of a man by the name of Bernard Michael Oliver, which was a, a celebrated murder in early 1967. Who is this guy? Bernard this. Mike, Michael Oliver was just a just a working class lad who uh, was, I think, gay and was suspected of trafficking in male attention during a time when all of this was against the law. And he was discovered, cut up into eight pieces, packed into two suitcases, and thrown into a hedge. Whoa! And there was, and it was a. It was a national scandal. This is a, this is in London somewhere. Yeah, it was a it was a crime that happened somewhere between London and and southern England. Suffolk, mm-hmm. I think, was where he was discovered. But he was a you know he was in the he was in the scene. He was in the gay scene. It they couldn't tell his identity at first, and actually, kind of scandalously, the British cops published a picture of his severed head. Asking people to identify him. Wow. And his family saw it in the newspaper and said, that's our boy. Well, you would have, wow, late 60s, you would have thought there'd be more of an outcry about that kind of imagery. But. Pretty bad. And I mean, I don't, I've never seen the picture, but I imagine that they didn't show it. I mean, they probably draped it in such a way that it wasn't, it wasn't explicitly a severed head. Mm, so. But it, as Scotland Yard started to investigate the murder, they made it clear in the press that that as part of their investigation, and this is a murder that remains unsolved. Oh yeah, um, that what they were going to do was interview every documented gay man in London, um, as a way of you know narrowing the search. Be- oh, because because they could tell that he had been assaulted, um, that that uh, Oliver had had been sexually assaulted. I see, and so. With this threat of interviewing every gay man in the country, uh, because of his conviction for for this bathroom crime, um, Meek suddenly felt like he was about to be outed by Scotland Yard. That his name would appear in the newspaper. That there were, that he would be scandalized. You know that there would be a tremendous scandal. But also, he was. This was just the final straw in what had what was. Yeah. Uh, a, a long and gradual, um, like decline in yeah, schizophrenic break. And, yeah, and um, and so uh, just a less than a month later, uh, Joe Meek, with a shotgun that he'd sort of confiscated from one of his bandmates after an earlier episode, um, took the shotgun, killed his landlady. For her chimney related. For her chimney snooping, and then killed himself. Mm. And this is in this is in February of 1967. And left behind uh, a trove of unreleased recordings. Um, he'd been experimenting 
throughout his entire life. He, he'd just the recordings that had made it out into the world. He'd had over 245 singles. Would he assemble musicians for these or was he, would, would he, he had a was house. he self-taught enough that he could play his own? No, no, he couldn't play a oh, thing. Okay. His, his, the tornadoes were his house band and they were making uh, music with him throughout the whole period. But he also had other, he, you know, he did recordings for numerous other artists. He had 45 top 50 singles in the course of his life. A lot of them songs that, uh, that you, you probably wouldn't recognize, you know, the, it, the singles chart is a kind of weird and fickle place. Sure. And novelty singles and songs that didn't make it into the. Because the big artists are probably not recording at this guy's house in uh, Islington or wherever. Right? right. But a lot, but he's managing to get tunes on the charts. He's coming up with interesting sounds. Tr- and, and they do have a Joe Meek sound, huh? They do. Like it's not, it's not just that he's very skillful at, like some some musicians, some producers maybe are just very skillful at bringing out the sound of the artist, but you wouldn't be able to. You wouldn't think this sounds like Quincy Jones from artist to artist. Maybe he's a bad example. Well, and what I think was happening was that although his songs weren't making it to the very top of the charts, a lot of musicians were listening to his recordings and producers listening to his recordings, back engineering how they were made, hmm. and uh, and then kind of du- duplicating those sounds, duplicating. Um, the effects, and also imagining the studio as as its own kind of instrument to play, going in and not trying to make your record sound like a band in a room, but trying to make sounds come in from left and right, sounds where you're not clear. I mean, one of the great things about the Beatles is that you're not clear how what some of those sounds are. What am I hearing? I'm not even good at separating in my head. Like, I'm hearing the music, and right. I think a, a better ear and a, maybe somebody with more musicianship would be able to say, ah, that's uh, you know, there's actually, sometimes I won't even like, I'll listen to something 20 times and then I'll be like, wait, there's brass in this, you know? And par- part of what you're experiencing is a wonderful thing. I remember uh, very distinctly when, the, when I lost the ability to hear music without picking out the bass and the drums and the guitar and the keyboards and hearing them individually. And uh, and I kind of long for a time that I could just listen to a song and hear it as music, because although it's a great, it's a wonderful, um, like Pantone of colors that I uh, that I'm able to hear in a song. I can't just hear the magical kind of uh, mystery of a of a, of a tour, for instance. Um, but you know, like it, it, like it doesn't just come into me as a flood of emotion. I have a, yeah, I have a, I haven't done a lot of screenplay work, but I think I know the, a lot of the structures well enough that I have the same problem now where I'll watch an episode of TV and I'll be like, well, you can see the problem they're trying to solve. Like all you can see is structure. You can see the problem that was trying to be solved and the attempts and kind of gauging your head, what you might've done. And it's just terrible for suspension of disbelief. And it's got to be even worse for music, which is theoretically should be a much more kind of abstract personal experience. It's amazing because you can hear incredible performances, right? You can hear when you listen to Marvin Gaye's what's going on and hear the bass and recognize what is happening mm. in that bass line. You can marvel at it and celebrate it in a way that you never would be able to, if you were just listening to it as a magical work. Um, but it is 
it does become technical. You do start to see multiple people rather than just the magic ghost of song. I mean, you, you mentioned thrash metal, and I had the experience of like just reading a lot about uh, what's the Slayer record, Rain and Blood, yeah. and just realizing how like technically near impossible the stuff is you're hearing. And suddenly, something that like aesthetically I could take or leave, I was just fascinated by because like in some kind of Guinness Book of World Records way, you're kind of listening to some pinnacle of human right. achievement. The fastest thrash. And I never would have, I, I could not have appreciated it without somebody explaining to me what I was hearing. Yeah. But but that's not what most people would get out of that record. You know, for many, for most people, the more they know about how it was done, it's it's taking away just the pure, what, fury and f- fervor of it, I guess. Yeah, whatever, whatever, why ever it is we listen to music to, to, to give an outlet to emotions, to stimulate them, to um, to give them voice, to give language to feelings. Um, the 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 legacy, the final legacy of Joe Meese, uh, Joe Joe Meek. Uh, his his incredible trove of tapes that that had recordings of young Bowie, young. Jimmy Page. Oh, he kept everything. They were all in this um, in this Footlocker that was purchased by a man named Cliff Cooper for three hundred pounds. Immediately, did, did, he, did he know what it was? Or? Yeah, oh yeah. Immediately after uh, Joe Meek's suicide, and those. I mean, it took a couple of decades just to archive all those recordings. Um, they're called the tea chest tapes because they were found in in a tea chest. <laughs> Um, and they're gradually, you know, the tea chest tapes, tea chest tapes, gradually become available over time. Uh, in the early nineties, uh, an engineer by the name of Ted Fletcher brought out a line of, of boxes, audio processing boxes, compressors and limiters based on Joe Meek's designs, which he called the Joe Meek series. He's, and and he was not just kind of re- reverse engineering the sound. He actually built the things the same way Meek had. They were, you know, they were tributes, yeah. I think. But but um, but the Joe Meek stuff became really popular stuff that you you uh, you see in recording studios today. People using Joe Meek brand compressors. There's actually a microphone called the Telstar that gets used quite a bit uh, in in recordings, and. You know, Joe Meek has within the, obviously, legendary status, but he also now is, um, you know, he's invoked sometimes in making recordings. Like, you know, you want to, not quite as an oblique strategy, but, you know, to take a Joe Meek approach. What's, what would Joe Meek sound like? Yeah, what would Joe, what would Joe, if, if I were screaming Lord Such and you were Joe Meek... And we met coming through the rye. I mean, that's a great compliment to somebody who was, who came at it from the science side, who was a nerd and a technician. To have such an influence on the like the emotional effect of the music that people speak of it as an as a kind of an abstract quality, the result of your work. I mean that that doesn't happen in too many technical fields. Like, no, it doesn't. And you know, he's a he's he's also in that pantheon of like British gay innovative tech nerds who were persecuted in their time. Sure. He's like Alan Turing with yeah. a, you know, if he could 
if he got to hang out with Bowie. Right, and val- then validated by history. And that concludes Joe Meek, entry 771.ps2509, certificate number 37241, in the Omnibus. Uh, future links, as always, we hope that our social media presences, to which we don't uh, devoted way too much of our time, are still preserved uh, on whatever remains of our global information network, if you have access to that. Uh, I'm at Ken Jennings on Twitter. Uh, please follow John, at John Roderick, who needs it more, on uh, Twitter, Instagram, all of the above. Uh, jointly, uh, you can look for at Omnibus Project to uh, keep up with our uh, endeavors. You can uh, send us email, if that's available to you, at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Uh, you can send us physical mail. Um, we get a lot of beautiful mail. Have you seen... We do. Look at this, John. From from uh, Dave here in Seattle sent us an envelope that he apparently made himself us. with our pictures on it. Look at us. Now, it, I should be clear. It also has an address. It didn't. It didn't yeah. arrive at us just with our pictures. <laughs> but uh, but that means that many many postal employees between there and here had to look at you and me smiling out, wearing hazmat suits. Yeah. And there's no explanation, as far as I can see. There doesn't appear to be a letter in here. He, Dave just sent us this without comment. It is a patch of Royal Sabina, which and Sabina was the national airline of Belgium. Yeah, I think we mentioned it on a show, didn't we? Did we? But I didn't. I didn't realize it was, and this is like a patch that looks like something you would wear on your military uniform. Is this from a a, a, a pilot's uniform? Is this stolen valor? If we pretend to no, now be... I don't think so. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, yeah, uh, Sabina's gone, right? Yeah. Sabina's gone. Well, that was nice. Of- Sabina's gone with the wind. Are you writing a new hit right now? No, that's, in front an, old, of us? that's an old hit. <laughs> and it's called Sabina's Gone? <laughs> we also got from... Uh, we also got two postcards. Uh, our friend uh, Mark, that does watercolor paintings, has sent us. Oh, his paintings uh, are so wonderful. Has sent us uh, a look at what's the name of the transcontinental uh, system with the arrows? Oh, um, I, I don't. Whatever we call that is, show. This is one of our quizzes. One <laughs> of the in, intra. It's called omnibus the, quiz. The transcontinental. I can't even find it. The giant yellow arrows that go across America. He has, uh, and look at the beautiful shadow work. You can tell it's uh, it's late in the day. That's lovely. Mm. If you have mm. access to our Patreon, you can see uh, we, we post pictures of Mark's work. That's really good. There, and uh, we also got um, we also got a postcard from our friend Sparky from Lake Havasu City, who has a remarkable story. What do you know? The, what the biggest site in Lake Havasu City is, John? Uh, Lake Havasu City, the biggest site is London Bridge. That is correct. And he talks about how his grandfather was born in London. And after living quite a life, including Geneva and Buenos Aires, he retired to Lake Havasu City. And uh, he spent the last 10 years of his life still walking everywhere, crossing the very bridge stone he had traversed as a child in London in the 20s and 30s. 
You know, uh, London Bridge has been on my list of omnibus topics from very, very early on. And I think in honor of that... uh, In honor of Sparky? In honor of Sparky, I'll make London Bridge my episode next week. Very exciting. Yeah. Uh, Well, I'll give you the postcard so you can prep from that. Nice. Uh, As I mentioned, um, being able to take a look at some of the weird stuff people send us is one of many perks available to supporters of the Omnibus Project Patreon. You can contribute to that at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. You can converse with fellow listeners uh, there or at our the Futurelings Facebook page. There's also um, a Discord, whatever that is. Yeah. There's a subreddit. Uh, John has an OnlyFans. Do you do do you do a cameo? Like if, if people pay you a hundred bucks, will you say happy birthday to their to their dad Somebody or whatever? Somebody wrote me the other day saying I should start an OnlyFans, and I was like, isn't that for cam girls and like uh, sexy sexy talk? Yes, yes, it is. And they said, no, 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 no. You can do OnlyFans. Anybody can do an OnlyFans. And uh, so then I went and looked at it, and I was like, I don't know what I would do here to make this exciting for people. Like I don't, I don't. I'm still wrestling with the idea, should I do a performance? Like, even if it, even if I just turned on my cam and sat there and read aloud from my own poetry, <laughs> uh, is that is that right to do? I, I have the guys at Cameo after me. It's that they just want, it's a thing where you go on, you people sign up for this platform and you put a price on what would be normal, friendly social interactions. I will say hello to you for 20 bucks. I will wish you happy birthday for 150 bucks. I will sing you a song for, so you've got people out there, like Jeremy Piven wants you to pay $13,000 just to have him send you a video from his phone. I don't want a video from Jeremy Piven's phone. I don't want anything from Jeremy Piven's phone. You'll probably get chlamydia. Does he really want $13,000 for that? Yeah, it was outrageously overpriced. I mean, I don't want him to sue me, so maybe I should get the number right. Jeremy Piven? trying to think of what I would want from Jeremy Piven if I had access to everything he owns. The news report was $15,000 for a 10-minute Zoom call with him. Oh. I mean, that's good work if you can get it. That would be $90,000 an hour, right? And he doesn't even play a guitar. I mean, if he played guitar, I could see. Yeah, if you play guitar, no price would be too... Can you imagine? Like, I would pay any amount of money just to have some guy noodle on his guitar. Oh, really? Yeah. For, uh... yeah let, me, uh... <laughs> let me see. Uh, what do you think this is worth? Take my money, John. That's fascinating. It's like you have a ukulele, but you don't have a ukulele. It's an unplugged electric guitar. I I wish I could do stuff over this, but I think I finished the... Didn't I finish the outro? I think I did. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. I just learned you can't talk and play at the same time. <laughs> I can. Let's see. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.